Welcome to the Acclimatise podcast. My name is Joshua and I'll be hosting guests across the environmental and sustainability industries. Today I spoke with Amy Roddick, the VP of Europe for Carbon Engineering. In this episode, Amy discusses the need for decarbonisation in the aviation industry and how direct air capture technology can help us get there. Removal solutions will be vital in helping us reach net zero by 2050. So it was exciting to hear about the work Carbon Engineering are doing to deploy megaton-scale air capture technology around the world. As though I'm Amy Ruddick, I'm VP for Europe in, uh, for Carbon Engineering, a direct air capture company. Before I joined Carbon Engineering, I was VP of Corporate Development and Sustainability at Virgin Atlantic. Uh, where I looked after corporate strategy, government affairs, uh, sustainability, and our heater expansion plans. Um, then before that, I spent about 10 years in consulting with the Boston Consulting Group, where I focused on aviation, and I was between our London and Atlanta offices, majority of time in London. Um, and then previous to that, which seems like a lifetime ago now, I did a PhD in chemical physics at the University of Cambridge, um, where I focused on surface science. Uh, pri- prior to that, I did my undergrad there too. My undergrad was natural sciences, um, where I, uh, where there were various elements, but um, chemistry, uh, material science, physics, and, and maths were the, the major components. So you've got quite a lot of experience in the aviation industry, kind of before your role at carbon engineering. So I just wanted to talk to you about what is involved at an airline in terms of carbon strategy and decarbonisation? Yeah, so I'd say I I was at Virgin Atlantic actually only for about a year with all the the COVID things that hit, but the bulk of that time I was really focused on our carbon strategy and I went through a real learning journey with the experts in the team there that already existed. I guess I'll start off by saying that if you look at all of the industries that have to decarbonise to get to net zero, transportation is one of the most complex ones uh, when you just look at the costs that are involved and the solutions that are out there. And then within transportation, aviation is one of the most complex. And within aviation, long haul aviation is the the most complex because there just aren't the fuels out there that have the right energy density to fly across the Atlantic other than carbon-based fuels at the moment. So that kind of compounded itself in Virgin Atlantic that is a that is a long haul airline. So there was a lot of focus on what is our role in getting to net zero by 2050. So we were part of an, an industry group as Virgin called Sustainable Aviation. That group is comprised of members from across UK aviation, airports, um, the OEMs like Boeing and Airbus, the airlines, and collectively the group have come to a path to take us to net zero by 2050. And a lot of that journey is, is focused on sustainable aviation fuels. And then the, the other part is on market-based mechanisms. So thinking about for every, um, every ton of carbon dioxide that, that's still out there, how do you permanently remove it from the atmosphere and working through that with market-based mechanisms. So when we looked at our carbon strategy as Virgin Atlantic, we, we lent heavily on what the, the industry answer was with all the will in the world. If it were available at, at scale, of course, you'd be buying 100% sustainable aviation fuels today, but, but it's not. So you need to work together as an industry, also including fuel players, 
I should probably say what um, sustainable aviation fuels are. Uh, they are they're effectively drop-in fuels um, versus uh, versus fossil fuels. So fossil fuels are carbon-based, carbon and hydrogen-based, and they are created by extracting fossil fuels from um, from, from the geosphere and, and and making them into different fractions of fuels. What sustainable aviation fuels do is find that carbon from a different source. So it's not coming from fossil fuels. In the example of carbon engineering, we extract carbon dioxide from the air and that's combined with green hydrogen. And together you make a product that looks and feels like kerosene that goes into the, into the airplane today. But, um, but because the source of the carbon is the atmosphere, you, you effectively create a circular economy rather than taking carbon from the geosphere. Yeah, so you talked about kind of sustainable aviation fuels and what the industry needs to really get to net zero emissions by 2050. Do you think that it's something that's possible and it's something that's realistic in the aviation industry? Or is it really we have to do our best to reduce the emissions and it's, it's going to require loads of players from loads of different areas of the industry? Uh, so it, it's possible, but the key is the net zero part. So first, with aviation, as it should be with any industry, it's about reducing. So flying the most efficient parts, using the most efficient airplanes, not loading more fuel than you need, etc. And all of that requires the, the Boeings and the Airbuses, the OEMs of this world. Um, it requires airports, it requires air, tra air traffic navigation, um, it requires airlines, right? So, so reduction first. Um, then there's the sustainable aviation fuel part, and the, the key players in that are, are the airlines that will provide the certainty of offtake. So if they can say to a sustainable aviation fuel provider, we will purchase this amount, that helps them go out and build plants because the plants become financeable. But it also requires, so it requires the fuel providers. And it also requires refineries and their existing logistics to get that fuel um, to the airports. And that takes you a certain amount down the journey, which will be different for, for, for different airlines. And then you've got a residual um, amount of carbon, which, which will still be emitted. If it's fossil fuels, that's a huge amount of emission. If it's more the circular type of fuels, it, it's much smaller, but there's still some. So, so the key is to think uh, if that carbon is still going to be emitted, if we believe that air travel is going to happen um, uh, and we need to, we need to keep using, using fuels to fly, then there's still going to be those residual emissions. So what is the best way to remove them from the atmosphere? Um, and then you get on to talk about solutions like direct air capture, um, which can provide those permanent removals. And you can sort of think as like almost a, a collector on the tailpipe of a of an airplane, but rather than being based on the plane, it's based on the ground. Um, and I should probably say that everything that I'm talking about, about the journey to net zero, it has been very focused on long haul aviation coming from Virgin Atlantic. But when you're talking about um, more short haul, shorter distances, that in the time frame of 2050, you have electric and hydrogen planes, which are, which are also going to be possible to technology and you'll start to see hybrid versions come online. Um, online very soon but they they will have limited range and you'll start to see those planes coming in and sort of the the island tops um up in scotland that will be the first kind of use cases that you'll see for the hydrogen 
what kind of impact do you think COVID has had on the airline industry and the transport industry as a whole in terms of the way maybe people think about reducing their carbon footprint through traveling at the way airlines have maybe looked at how they can really speed up and the focus that's been shifted onto climate change? Yeah, I think sped up is the operative word. It's it's an acceleration of a trend that's already happening. Increasingly, people looking at how to reduce their carbon footprints, and, and one of those one of those ways, one of the most obvious ways to some people is to look at look at their air travel. I mean, in particular, businesses. Um, when you look at the carbon footprint of a business, you're looking at the scope one, two, and three, and a majority of the scope three can, can be air travel. So. Um, so for sure that that was coming and that was that was happening over time, but COVID has very much accelerated it. Um, I think when I when I think back to the first few months of COVID, there was discussion around is this going to change fundamentally the way that we do business? Are people going to move all to video calls and therefore travel will go down, you know, like 50%? I think at the time there was a lot of skepticism about it being a fundamental change of working because it's quite easy to flip back to the way you, you did things before but when we're, we're now talking uh in fact nearly to the day we're talking a year um of working like this um it will be more than a year and i do think there has been that fundamental shift now and um, you will see impact on on demand more so in business travel than leisure travel um, I think there's a pent-up demand for people to take holidays. I think that pent-up demand will mainly go to, to short haul because as well as the pent-up demand, you have people starting to worry a bit more about more exotic locations that might be that might be long-haul travel. So short-haul travel, I, I see coming back with demand. Long-haul travel will, but maybe a bit longer. Business travel will take a, a fundamental change and will be on a different path of growth than we were before. But I, so that's sort of the demand side. And then I think on the airline's ability to, to react to the climate domain, you've, you've sort of got the carrot and the stick. So the stick, you look at bailouts that have happened in the industry. Um, I think Air France is a, is a prime example where certain conditions were put on domestic routes that compete with other forms of transport and conditions around like percentage of sustainable aviation fuel that they need to they need to use in their mix so that will drive behaviors through the stick then i guess airlines have been thinking a long time about fleet replacement cycles and bringing on board the best technology there's a huge will to invest in areas like sustainable aviation fuel and things like hydrogen technology there's less of a way now there's there's just not those cash reserves that there were before. There's just not those investment funds. So I think always the airline's role in, in bringing on board solutions has been to be the commercial off-taker, to, to promise that they will take the product. Um, I, think, I think that's still the case, but even more so. So airlines have less ability to kind of go and invest in projects than they, than they have before. But yeah, it's certainly risen to the top of the debate. Like I take the UK, um, and where the where the aviation industry has been really hit this year, and there's been a lot of a lot of negativity. I, I see huge positive momentum with the Jet Zero Council, um, which is a public private partnership 
um, between effectively the sustainable aviation body and um, the Department for Transport and working together very closely on what should be our kind of uh, big, hairy, audacious goals um, for the next decade and how do we bring them online. So I think 2021, especially ahead of COP26, you'll see lots of announcements coming around um, aviation, aviation's goals that are led by both government and industry coming together. Yes, obviously we know that COVID has hit and it's had a financially a massive impact on airlines, which means that maybe kind of investing in new fleets and new equipment to, to be more efficient is obviously a lot more difficult. But like you said, it's important for them to uptake any products that do come out and, and commit to that. Moving on to obviously your work is at Carbon Engineering and kind of the technology there. We spoke briefly about the sustainable aviation fuels. As best as you can, could you try and explain direct air capture, what carbon engineering do and the way the technology works? Yeah, so I'll start with direct air capturing in general and um, perhaps even more broadly, greenhouse gas removals, which in, in, the, in the UK is talked about as GGR. I think we'll increasingly see that acronym talked about. So I like to borrow an analogy from my boss, uh, the CEO of Carbon Engineering, Steve Oldham. And if you think about the atmosphere as a bath, for many years since the Industrial Revolution, we've been running a tap into that bath um, and it's been filling up with water. That water is, of course, carbon dioxide. We're now getting to the point where that water is getting towards the rim and when it flows over, there's going to be all kinds of chaos, all kinds of catastrophe. It, it's not good for the house. It's not good for the world. Um, so we need to stop that overflowing. If you notice that bath was in your house, you'd probably do a couple of things. You, you'd turn the tap off. But what you probably find is that, you know, there's, a, there's an old nut in there and you can't quite turn it off and there's still a drip, drip, drip. Um, and maybe like over, over the, the minutes, you're able to turn it off more and more, but it, it's still dripping. And that, that, is what, that is what's happening in terms of reduction. We are reducing as much as possible, but the hard to reduce sectors like decarbonisation, um, like, sorry, like transportation, we'll still have, we'll still have that drip. Then the other thing you probably do is, is pull the plug and remove what's, what's already in the bath. And that is what direct air capture is doing. So the reductions, the fleet and everything is about turning the tap off, the, the capturing carbon dioxide from industry when it comes out of blue gases. That's turning the tap off. Direct air capture um, and other GGR solutions is, is, is pulling the plug out. So they're, they're collectively called greenhouse gas removals. There's a few examples. There's really three categories, I guess. There's um, direct air capture, uh, there's nature-based solutions, and there's um, BEP, bioenergy, carbon capture and storage. Um, which sort of sits sort of sits across the two. How to think about direct air capture within that is it's it's a solution that it captures carbon dioxide from the air and and through the process concentrates it. So effectively the product is an extremely concentrated source of carbon dioxide. You can then take that and you can bury it underground and safely, securely for um, tens of thousands, even millions of years with, with, with high probability. 
or you can take that carbon dioxide and recycle it into products. And that's the earth fuels that I've been talking about before. Um, but the, the negative emissions part of it, the GGR part of it is sequestering it underground. Each of the different methods have their, have their huge pros um, and, and sort of the constraints to their deployment. So the many scientific bodies, including the IPCC, have said we're going to need a portfolio of solutions. Like you can't bet on any one of those coming forward. By the end of the century, every year, we're going to need gigatons of removal of carbon dioxide. We need to bring each of those solutions online. Direct air capture is completely scalable. So you can put a plant anywhere, um, but the best place for a plant is near to where the carbon dioxide will be sequestered. It's got unlimited feedstock. The feedstock is the carbon dioxide in the air and there is um, way too much of it. And then the land that you need um, is much smaller than some other solutions, the, the land and the water. So. Um, one direct air capture plant built by, um, by, by carbon engineering, they're, they're megaton scale plants, they, uh, they do the work of about 40 million trees, um, so it's about 100 times less land, um, a couple of hundred times less, less water. So that's what direct air capture does. I guess another way to think about direct air capture is that there are some great studies by bodies like, um, like Goldman Sachs who have a publication called Carbonomics, and they look at the cost of decarbonizing industries, and they kind of plot it on a scale. They say that the world has 42 gigatons of carbons that we need to get rid of at the moment. We're on a path to 80. Um, but in some industries, that's going to be pretty cheap to, to stop emitting. Like, um, there are some power solutions that are only going to cost us 50 pounds per tonne, for example. By the time you get to transportation, you're talking all the way up to a thousand pounds per ton. Um, if you if you need to switch to fully electric hydrogen planes, or you need to replace with sustainable aviation fuels, so there's kind of a curve of costs. And um, you can think of direct air capture as cutting that curve. Um, so if direct air capture were to be at two hundred and fifty dollars, which is which is feasible and feasible today for first plants you cap the cost. So anything above that, you've just reduced the, the global bill by trillions. There's a path for carbon engineering technology down to $100 per tonne. Um, you save more trillions on that, on that last part of the graph. Um, so that's a nice way to think about it. So that's sort of the, the problem in direct air capture. And then onto carbon engineering itself. It was founded in 2009 by a Harvard professor called David Key. It's a, it's a privately owned company. And between 2009 and 2015, you can think of the period as kind of R&D experiments. From 2015 onwards, we've been running a pilot plant out in British Columbia in Canada. Uh, that pilot plant has the capacity of one tonne of carbon dioxide capture per day. So the, the technology has been proven at, at pilot scale. And now we're working on really two pieces. The, the critical piece to talk about is commercializing the technology. Carbon engineering has a licensing um, business model. So we license our technology to local plant developers. Um, and in the US, we're partnered with Occidental Petroleum. Um, so Oxy's low carbon ventures are called 1.5. And 
using carbon engineering technology, they're currently working on deploying the first megaton scale plant out in the Permian Basin. It's currently undergoing the front end engineering design, which should end towards the end of this year, but it will be the first, the world's first industrial scale direct air capture plant. That was really, really helpful. Definitely helped me understand. Is carbon engineering based in the US at the moment? Headquarters in Canada, in British Columbia, um, but but my role is is to grow the business in the UK and Europe. Yeah, so that's what I wanted to ask about. So obviously, your role is is growing it in the UK and Europe. Are there the same opportunities land wise in Europe as there maybe are in Canada and the US? Yeah, so in in the UK we have a partnership with Pale Blue Dot Energy. Pale Blue Dot are the, the developers of the Acon site up by the North Sea. So the, uh, the pipelines that take you to the North Sea depleted oil fields and the ability to store carbon, carbon dioxide there. So the UK is a prime example of a very good location for direct air capture plants. We have a lot of North Sea storage and it's a competitive advantage for the UK. But, but the UK has similar levels of carbon dioxide storage to uh, to the rest of, of the EU 27. So we need to use that advantage. The world is going to need a lot of carbon capture and storage but from the air. We should use that competitive advantage and, uh, and move ahead. The, the other countries in Europe that have access to the North Sea, in Rotterdam in the Netherlands, they're, they're developing uh, another project at the port of Rotterdam. So also transport CO2. The same in Norway, the, the project Northern Lights is also looking to use that, that North Sea storage. Um, and there's also discussions in Denmark about using it too. So they're kind of your, your prime examples of early perfect sequestration sites where, where you have depleted oil fields. Um, and then there's other ways that you can store the carbon dioxide underground. Um, and there's some onshore possibilities across across some of mainland Europe. I expect discussion around using those storages might come slightly later, but in, in the near term, I think for mainland Europe, you're, you're talking um, utilization of the CO2. So you capture it and then you use it in products. So more of a kind of circular than the, than the negative emissions. Um, so the UK itself can kind of think of it, can think of an export opportunity of doing direct air capture for the world. Right, so yeah, you talked about kind of you know, essentially re recycling the carbon and using it in products like sustainable aviation fuels and carbon engineering have have an approach like that. They have the air to fuels approach. Could you kind of explain a little bit more about what carbon engineering are doing with sustainable aviation fuels and any kind of partnerships they have or, or how they're rolling that out? Yeah, so in the pilot facility that I mentioned, since 2017, we've added the air to fuels um, capability as well. Um, Carbon engineering's IP and know-how is in the direct air capture side of it and how to combine it across the whole fuel process. But our, our go-to-market is we need to partner with people who have expertise in electrolysis um, to produce um, green hydrogen. And then in Fisher Trotch, the, the reaction that takes you all the way to the fuels and also in providers of, uh, of renewable energy. So the ideal consortium looks like a, a group of those players. But yeah, in, in terms of uh, air, air to fuels production, um, we, we, we've been running at the pilot plant 
And as part of Canada's Sky's the Limit competition, we, we produced a batch of uh, synthetic crude oil. Um, and then from there, we refined it down to sustainable aviation fuel recently. So it's been demonstrated at pilot scale. And again, now it's about um, going to market at commercial scale. But um, uh, with, with the direct air capture technology and the air fuels technology, well, the, the technology is there. It works. It's a case of making sure that the, the market exists, which is really the critical barrier to, to rolling out all of these technologies and ensuring, a, ensuring there's a financeable market. Yeah, so there's obviously, we know that the scale is there. It is scalable technology. It's proven to work. What do, you know, companies like Carbon Engineering, what do they want from the industry? You talked about kind of commercialising. What do you need from from businesses? You know, kind of where is your market? So the, the financeable market is all about getting the right policy in place. Um, the technology is there. There are willing plant developers who, um, who who see that carbon management is is the next big growing industry for the world. But in order to finance a plant um, that's going to last thirty years and requires really infrastructure investment, you, you need to have revenue certainty. Like in the same way that airports are built because they have. Re- in the UK, they have revenue certainty from the airlines. They have the license to charge the airlines to land. Um, in the sum, same way that utilities plants are built because they have a guaranteed revenue stream. You need the same for direct air capture. So we like to say it's, it, if you do think about waste management, you, you pay people to take away your rubbish, which doesn't have any inherent value other than you need to do it for, for clean streets, for clean living. Again, with carbon dioxide, we need to reward people for for cleaning up the skies. Um, but yeah, it's having that policy in place. At the moment, if you if you try to deploy a plant in the UK, you're not rewarded for removing the carbon dioxide. There's, there's no revenue stream. There'll be no private investment. So private investment is lined up. It's just how do we put a price on that service is, is the big question now. And I think in the in order for a market to operate operate well it needs to be large enough established like so it's liquid enough so companies can trade with each other the californian lcfs is a really good example of 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 how that can work in the californian lcfs you have an obligation um to reduce the carbon um intensity of fuels um and that that obligation increases over time so you need a lower and lower carbon intensity on average and that means that the, the price that um, that you can get for low carbon fuels it is sufficient to drive development over time. So we need a market that operates something like that in the UK as well. The RTFO in the UK is, is a really good example of how it could work, but we have to think about how we incentivize the lowest carbon intensity fuels and also how we could put direct air capture within that as well, in the same way that it's in the Californian LCFS. But then that works once it's a large and operating market, but but in the near term, you need to think about bringing first plants online. And typically a way to do that is government service contracts. So 
one example could be that the, the government realizes that they've got their own carbon footprint that needs to be removed. Um, what if they put out to tender, you know, we have two megatons per year that we need to, we need permanent removals for. And if you can provide that service, then you get a contract and that could give you the revenue certainty to build a plant. And I think that would be a really nice solution for first plants that can complement what businesses can do. Um, it, businesses can, can do exactly the same. They can say, look, I've got this footprint and I want it removed. I will give you a contract or I will give you a certain quantity that I want you to remove. Um, and you put that with government and suddenly you have a revenue stream for the plant um, that can bring it online. So yeah, so you talk about how important it is maybe for governments to get involved and to help create that revenue stream. From what you've seen in the UK, is, is that where it's going? Are governments going to you know, be able to contribute significantly to the, to the growth of the market? No, so I would really emphasise that the government's role is in the first few years to bring the technology online and then it should transition to a liquid private market. Um, but liquid private markets need support to start. So there is a lot of momentum in the UK at the moment. Um, in the area so it has not stalled at all in fact I started on the 1st of December and it's been overwhelming the amount of action I need to build up my team but at the moment I'm one person not a day goes by when there's not a new debate launch so if you take Bayes our department of business energy and industrial strategy um currently there's there's really there's three things of high interest out there. So there's a there's a competition for greenhouse gas removals, which is effectively access to funding for for starting to demonstrate some of these technologies on UK soil. Um, closing today, actually, there's a, there's a call for evidence about greenhouse gas removals, and, and the government is asking industry like, how should we be rewarding this? Um, and we're expecting that to lead to ideas coming out again um, towards the end of this year and it's all building up momentum towards COP26. And then um, the, the third piece, uh, that there's a lot of talk at the moment around industrial clusters of, um, of emissions called CCUS clusters. Um, and in, in, uh, John, in Boris Johnson's um, 10 point plan, he, he spoke about having two industrial clusters live by the mid 2020s and then four online by 2030, like that's incredibly important. You can't do direct air capture and sequestration without sequestration infrastructure. So we think of direct air capture plants as like critical infrastructure to bring those clusters to net zero. Um, they can capture the industrial sources, but there will still be some residual. You need direct air capture to make the net zero. But it's very welcome that talk about the infrastructure. And that's just on the base side and then on the National Infrastructure Commission side, there's also a call for evidence that is, is out next week um, on the same kind of topic on incentivization. Um, and then on the Department for Transport side, there's a lot of discussion around what a, a SAF mandate should look like. Um, and also, can we, what can we do about having a zero emission flight by the end of the decade as well? So there's two pieces of work happening under the Jet Zero Council. So I, I don't have worries something will happen. The, the key is getting it right. It would be a real missed opportunity if in the lead up to COP, 
all of this work um, by industry led to something which had a very low carbon price on it, which which is fine for nature-based solutions, which which are great, like the world needs a lot more trees, but ultimately you have to build scalable solutions as well. And if if you're putting a price on carbon of 20, 50 pounds, like the EU ETS, which is trading at $40 at the moment, um, not going to be enough. So my only worry is that we get the, the right mechanism, not that there won't be a mechanism. Right, so it's about kind of the right things happening at the right time and in the right way. Um, it's not really kind of about when, it's just it, it needs to happen sooner rather than later. Um, yeah. And so in terms of the, the future of carbon engineering, where do you see that going? Do you see kind of a lot of growth within the UK and Europe? So big, in the US, we have big plans for expansion. Um, we need, I want to at least replicate that in the UK and Europe. So in the UK alone, I see potential for 25 plants um, at megaton scale. And then that's not even including Europe. Like there's some high priority countries in Europe who, who are really thinking about the carbon intensity of what they do. Uh, Germany is a prime example that's really looking at e-fuels and air-to-fuels as an example of e-fuels. Norway, I mentioned, the Netherlands, I mentioned. So extremely high potential. And uh, I haven't yet done the work to put a number on it, but, but certainly you can at least talk about doubling the UK size across Europe. Yeah, and then so the last question I had for you was talking about obviously your work with, you know, you've kind of been all over the industry, you know, between aviation and now carbon capture technology. For any kind of students or any graduates wanting to get into the industry or wanting to be a part of this, of the growth of the industry, kind of what can they do? Do you have any advice or tips for them? So my first point would be don't be passive. The world needs this. Um, the world needs carbon removal. The world has so much opportunity. Like once, um, once that's realised, there will be so many opportunities in place. So you should think about how do I create that opportunity. Um, the first thing I'd say is really do your research. Like this stuff isn't just surface level understanding. There's debates going on in every corner about permanence of, of solutions removals versus avoidance like how to think about reductions first before removals so really do your research really form a view and decide which part of it really excites you you need to decide where you can bring unique skills like I looked when I left Virgin Atlantic I thought um, I want to get involved in decarbonisation. De decarbonisation is way too broad and you'll never find your niche. So then I sort of thought, well, I know aviation, so it's decarbonisation of aviation. And then I started to think, okay, well, what, what does that look like? And that's how I ended up at Direct Air Capture. So it, do your research, find out what your niche is based on your skill set, and then, and then create the opportunity. So I've been, I've been talking about the need for the right regulation to bring these solutions online. The right regulation comes about because there's public debate on it and the right people are hearing the right things. So I start that at grassroots. Like it, it's great you as a university student are doing these podcasts and talking about it. Like let's get more people talking about it. I am hugely encouraged to see a lot of corporates signing up to net zero and then corporates like 
and like Shopify really thinking about not just, I think there's a transition from, um, a transition in the understanding of what net zero means. So originally, I say originally, like 18 months ago, when corporates were saying net zero, carbon neutrality, what they meant is I will take my footprint for the year and I will offset it. I Increasingly now, and I like the way that Shopify put it as well, that they're thinking if I had a dollar, what's the best I could do with the dollar for the climate, for climate change? And the more we start thinking like that, the more that you start to aggregate demands for technological solutions and bringing them online. Um, it's, it, it's people, individuals, students, like having that same mentality as the Shopify's and starting to drive that debate. Um, then, then we move policy and, and we get there. So there's a huge amount you can do as a student, but I wouldn't just, I wouldn't just think like, I have to rush out there and talk to companies about jobs. Like everybody, a lot of this is being driven by startups. People at startups are incredibly busy and it's going to be difficult. Um, but yeah, create your opportunities. Start, start your own thing or, um, or drive the growth and then the opportunities will come. Brilliant, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So that was, that was the last question I had for you. Um, but thank you for, for coming on. It's great to kind of hear from an expert and, and share your knowledge about the industry. I'm really grateful for that opportunity. You're very welcome. It was great to talk about it. And um, yeah, I wish you every success and do keep driving the debate.